välkommen till Kulturhuset Stadsteatern i Stockholm och podcasten Författarscenen. Jag heter Ingemar Fast och är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i det stora Alkonsthuset vid Särgelstorg. Och nu ska du få möta författaren Douglas Stewart i ett samtal med Björn av Klen. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be in Stockholm. Thank you. Um, you're not Shaggy Bane, and this is not a memoir, but you do share some circumstances with him. Your early life do looks a little similar to Shaggy's. Uh, your mother battled addiction, mm-hmm. and she passed away when you were 16, mm-hmm. and you lived on your own mm-hmm. in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So my first question would be, If someone approached you when you were 16 mm-hmm. and told you that, you know, you will one day in 30 years or so write a book that will not only be published, it will receive the Booker Prize mm-hmm. and you will quit your day job, you will travel the world as the Dickens of the post-industrial age, what will you have answered that guy? <laughs> That's a good question. I'd probably have run away. I would have. <laughs> I mean, I would have wondered what he was going on about. Uh, I mean, at 16, I had no uh, concept of anywhere where my life was going. You know, you're right in the fact that the book is a work of fiction, but I do borrow a lot with my own life for the book. I wouldn't want you to ever read any of the scenes and think that it's drawn directly from my life, but I grew up as poor as Shuggy. I came from a very proud working class family who were decimated under the Thatcher government. Um, And I'm the youngest son of a single mother who suffered with addiction my entire childhood. And then I lost her suddenly at 16. And so, as well as being queer in this very sort of uh, patriarchal place. And so at 16, really, I was thinking about how to survive. I was suddenly alone. And so I would have asked them, uh, what's the booker? And then (laughs) I would have, you know, I would have, I don't know. I couldn't have comprehended. In the novel, the brother, Shaggy's older brother, Alexander Leek, Uh, has uh, artistic aspirations and yeah. talent. He, he draws a lot, That's right. and he uh, almost got into art school, mm-hmm. where he got a letter of acceptance. That's right. And the sister, you know, she moves to South Africa, which is almost like the moon in the context of the novel. It's very far away. Really far what, away. When when Shaggy was 16, how far did his uh, dreams uh, reach in terms of the rest of his life? Oh, I think when Shuggy was 16, because where we leave him at the end of the novel is he's on the brink of manhood, I think all of his dreams were wrapped up in his mother, and he's he's in this sort of position of shock. Um, he's lost the greatest love of his life in a way, but at the same time he's then pivoted towards this place where suddenly the person he loves the most in the world is is free from pain. Um, and, and there's a release with that, I think, both, not to spoil the book, but to, for Agnes and also for Shuggy. And then And he also finally has the, you know, as many young queer men have, the transformative power of a female friendship, someone who finally sees him and sees all of him, both what his history has been and also his own queerness and doesn't want to change him. The first person he almost meets that doesn't need him to be something else. And so I think he's just reckoning with his future. He's just, he's just there, happy to, be, to have a future, I think. 
uh, who knows where he's going to go. I'm often asked, where does Shuggy go after that? And, <laughs> and I say, I don't know, I would love to know. <laughs> but you will know, because you're writing a, a, you have written a second novel, which deals with a Shuggy-like character later in life, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. My next novel actually will be published next April, but we leave Shuggy on the brink of manhood, on the brink of independence, or not, he's actually independent. Um, but his, the love of his life was his mother, and so I was keen to go back and look at a parallel life where a young queer man has his first love affair, where he really falls in love with another man. But Young Mungo publishes next April, and it's, it's really about star-crossed lovers who are separated by the sectarian divide, which can be quite a divisive thing in Glasgow. Uh, but they're looking to have a safe place for themselves, they're looking to belong, they're looking to find peace with their love. But I still want to know when... when Shaggy or Douglas, you know, um, decided that he might one day be a writer. Uh, because you told an under-journalist, I listened online, that when you sat down with your mother mm-hmm. and you tried to comfort her or control her, mm-hmm. you um, together were to write her memoir. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, took, you dictated her words. That's right. So in a way, Shaggy Bain is a, a memoir like that. Yeah, it, it certainly draws on a lot of personal experience and feelings. And and when you're the child of a parent who suffers with addiction, very quickly that relationship inverts or it flips. And, and you take care for, of the parent often. You know, I was an incredibly lonely young boy because I was queer. Um, and my mother was incredibly lonely because she was... Uh, suffering with addiction and people didn't like to look at it. There's an awful lot of stigma in society, especially when women um, are hurt or are suffering. Um, And so I learned at about seven or eight years old that my mother needed someone to talk to. She, you know, she needed someone to communicate with. And if I could give her my full attention, then she would uh, be safe and she would slow down drinking and she would she would really look after herself. And so I would sit at her feet, I would get out an old school book, a school jotter, and I would let her tell me her stories, you know, from before I was born, from her failed love lives. And my mother was fascinated with Elizabeth Taylor because Elizabeth Taylor, first of all, is, uh, you know, an incredibly beautiful, glamorous woman. But she's also a a pretty difficult, prickly woman, you know, both on screen and in her personal life. You know, she never plays a subservient character in front of the camera, but she also had many failed uh, love affairs and she drank. Uh, But we sort of uh, celebrate her for that, you know, we we make her an icon. And then my mother, I think, always felt um, she was doing exactly the same thing, but we were sort of punishing her for that. So she always felt this huge sense of injustice. So when I would sit at her feet and I would just spend these afternoons with her, she would always begin her memoirs with the same dedication. And it always went to Elizabeth Taylor, who knows nothing about love. And I just thought, I mean, God love the woman, you know, this woman in Glasgow who was going to write her memoir and and start there. And then I'm sure the next line, because I was eight, was like, once upon a time, you know, we didn't start in a very elegant way, but, but it was a wonderful way to be with my mother. It was a wonderful way to share stories. A lot of my childhood, actually, Bjorn was, I was, inc- at the time, it seemed, um, you know, at the time I didn't appreciate it for what it was, but because I was sort of shunned by all the other boys, the boys didn't know what to do with me. I was very feminine, I was sensitive, and the men didn't know what to do with me. I didn't have a father. Um, my entire world was actually my mother and my mother's friends, and so it was a it was a woman's world. And as a little boy, you know, I I realized that was very different. 
But as a writer, as a man, I feel incredibly lucky to have been there. But how much did you understand of her stories that you were going to put in the memoir? I mean, what did you grasp of her experience at that point? You know, the strange thing is, is I think because we were both quite lonely, I was often a proxy for a lot of different things in my mother's life, you know? It, it wasn't that I was her husband, but I was often her partner. I was often, you know, her son. I was her caregiver. I could be her best friend. Um, and so she was very blunt with her stories. She didn't uh, filter it. This wasn't a 42-year-old woman talking to an eight-year-old boy. This was a 42-year-old woman talking to a crony, you know? And so sometimes it would sort of like really stun me, you know, they could be very graphic, they could be very violent, they, but they were always incredibly honest. And And because I lost my mother at such a young age, at 16, you know, I went to school one day, I came home, she wasn't there. Um, I'm so grateful for those times because at least it helped me to, under, to know her a little bit. In a way that I think children don't often know their parents, um, but alcohol is like that. It's a great leveler sometimes. It breaks down a lot of social barriers, but it also... Um, It's like this lubricant that just lets the conversation flow. People forget their filters. Yeah. But was it a dream of yours uh, that you carried with you to, to, to actually write her book? Um, it wasn't a conscious dream. It wasn't something that I, I, I held in my mind like that. But I think in some way I've done that with Shuggy Bane. And I think I do that with Young Mungo too. You know, Shuggy Bane stands in quite a long literary tradition. Uh, There are many books about British social class, about the poor suffering soul. We think about Irvin Welsh, we think about James Kelman, uh, if you like Barry Hines, A Kestrel for a Knave. Um, but they always focus on heterosexual men or, or men against a labor backdrop. And for me, I had just known the, the strength of the city, the, the power to be women uh, and to be queer men as well, you know, just to be the, the people we never heard from or we never saw. And so when I sat down to write Shuggy, I almost wanted to exclude men from the book uh, to the point where they only serve point for the plot, but really we focus on Agnes and whether she has sorority or whether she's isolated with other women. Um, and in a way, I think I was trying to answer a silence um, on my mother's behalf in a way, you know. And I hate the line, you know, giving voice to the voiceless because my mother had a voice and every woman around her had a voice. You had to clap your hands over your ears sometimes because these were women that would, you know, that were, that did not live in fear often, but it wasn't that they didn't have a voice, it was that people weren't listening. Right. I mean, one feature of the, of, of the queerness of Shaggy is his language. He's very articulate, mm. uh, and Agnes too. And he uses you know, advanced words such mm -hmm. as vulgar, and mm -hmm. uh, the other boys in the neighborhood are, are uh, giving him a hard time because of mm -hmm. language. Um, where, did, where did that language come from? Yeah, well, Shuggy was a really fun character to write, and I and I pushed in. I didn't necessarily have that vocabulary when I was his age, but I really wanted him to be this very precocious, almost startling little boy. He often sort of really shocks adults the first minute he opens his mouth, and and I was really thinking about how sort of uh, how strange I was as a young boy whose best friend was his mother, and so his entire way of interpreting the world was his mother. But language is important in the book because obviously growing up poor in Glasgow, we had quite a broad, much broader than I speak now, but a very broad, somebody laughed, I can hear it. Yeah, um, we had a very broad Glaswegian accent. Um, but you know, 
oftentimes in a classist society, in an imperial society, when you speak with your native tongue, it's repressed or you're told, you know, it's seen very quickly as limiting your potential or revealing something about your, your wealth or your socioeconomic or your ability to attain an education. And so Agnes is almost a, a product of that. You know, she's, she should have a very broad Glaswegian accent, but she forces this, we call it a Mulgai accent. Mm. It's a very posh part of Glasgow. She almost sounds like a newscaster. Uh, and so um, she really sort of affects this. And then her children affect it and it increases their isolation. Um, because the, th the thing about Agnes that maybe some readers don't pick up upon, and everybody in the time, you know, whether you had wages coming into the house or not, they were pretty much on a par. Um, the houses were identical because they were council houses. The shape, the amount of rooms, you know, everything you had really was very standardized in a lot of ways. So when you have someone, a man or a woman like Agnes, who has this self-worth and who's projecting something that she might not be, it's really jarring. And people know it's, it's as out of place. I mean, I'm not going to push this <laughs> push this <laughs> theme too hard, but one feature of, of writers uh, is that they are observers and they mm -hmm. notice things. And yeah. uh, Shaggy is a great observer. Mm -hmm. uh, he has to be. Mm -hmm. He's forced to become one. That's right. Because his mother's unpredictability and he's mm -hmm. there to save his mother. Mm -hmm. um, so in a way, do you think that because did that turn you into a writer in a way? Yeah, it, it forces you to be incredibly watchful when you're the child of someone who's suffering with addiction. And children generally, we hope, uh, when they're inside a functional family, are the center of their universe. And everyone sort of serves them almost in a way, you know, we become butlers or caregivers to them. But when you have an adult who is really hurting in that way, that doesn't happen. And so as a child, you learn very quickly you're not the most important person in the room. And there's a terror in loving an addict. You never quite know how it's going to go. You know, especially alcoholism, it can, it can be very changeable. You can drink to have a good time. You can drink to be sad. You can drink to bring out anger. Agnes drinks for all kinds of reasons and it, and it mutates all the time. And, and so both personally, as a young boy, I was incredibly watchful. You're always trying to see what's about to happen and then get in front of it so it isn't yeah. quite so bad. But I want, but so do Shuggy and Leek, you know, so do these brothers. Um, and they're in this sort of, terror's a big word, but they're in this sort of constant state of anxiety to the point where Shuggy stands on the street before he comes in from school. And he kind of looks at this house and he sees, are the lamps on, but the curtains open? That's not a good sign because then people can see in and that's not good. You know, can they hear music, but what kind of music is it? And as a kid, you're like that. You know, you're always waiting for the weather to change. Um, and so I wanted that anxiety that Shuggy feels also for the reader to sort of have that thrum of not knowing what would come next. Are you still like that? Yes. <laughs> you, need a, you need a therapist couch. Does somebody, does somebody have something I can lie on? Yeah, I mean, I think it forms everything about you as an adult when you grow up in that way. And yeah. I think in my relationships now, I have a very tough time trusting good times. And I write about that in the book as Shuggies. You know, even when Agnes is sober, there's a slight distrust to it because it never quite sticks, never quite lasts. And so you can't even enjoy the good moment because you're already like, oh, what's going to happen next week when this happens? And as an adult, like all of those things as an adult, yeah. But when you wrote the novel, did you feel that you could you put those that cautiousness or to use finally? Or? 
Yeah, I, I put my powers of observation to use. You know, I didn't study as, a, as an MFA in creative writing. I didn't, uh, I don't have a circle of writer friends when I was writing. I actually, um, you know, I trained in textiles. I'm actually a knitter of all the things uh, because it was a very pragmatic Scottish trade and it's hugely employable. We make exquisite knitwear, I think. I'm very proud. Um, but, you know, I'd always wanted to be a writer as a young man, uh, but it's just something from boys from my class and my background. It was, it was too far of a dream, too far of a reach. English, academia, literature, Oxford, just not there for me. Um, but also, you know, my, my schooling was so disrupted because I was bullied, but also because there were days, there were weeks I couldn't go to school because of my mother. Um, and so when I sat down to actually start writing Shuggy, I was at the height of my fashion career, Bjorn, in New York, but I was unhappy because I wasn't quite doing what I wanted to do with my life. And um, I sat down to write the book and the very first you know, couple of times I sit down to write, I'm a terrible writer. Te like really lousy, this is not false modesty, because I was trying to emulate my heroes, you know, I was trying to be Hemingway, I was trying to be Tony Morrison, <laughs> and I was lousy, I was really lousy. And I realized that, you know, I've spent my entire life watching, just watching, but not only certainly my mother and the world around me always feeling sort of on the outside, but then also with visual arts and with textiles, you, it's about paying very close attention to texture, to, uh, to how things juxtapose. And I suddenly thought, well, maybe I can just make a very immersive story mm. by building this world with, uh, with, with really rich details. Mm. So you literally integrated your two, your two lives mm. as, a, as a young boy and as a, as a designer in a way. Yeah, it took me a while to realize I had some strengths. I didn't even know I had any strengths. But it eventually just sort of clicked on me when I took the pressure off myself, actually. And I stopped trying to be someone that I wasn't. Mm. A writer that I wasn't. I've asked you to read a couple of pages. It's yeah. from one of my favorite sections of the book. Yeah. Um, um, Agnes and the three children mm -hmm. are moving to a new area That's right. outside of Glasgow. Mm -hmm. Things going to be easier. You know, they, have, they will have a garden. They will have a front door. Yeah. Oh. And she's going to drink less. And Shaggy is going to make new friends and act like a boy, finally. And then reality mm -hmm. sets in. Mm -hmm. Please. Yeah. Actually, I have to just say thank you for asking me to read this. I've never read this part before. So um, if I stumble a little, please do forgive me. Um, but yeah, they're, they're heading from the center of Glasgow out to the, the green belt outside the city in the back of a black taxi. They slid the windows all the way down and the taxi filled with a rushing breeze that carried the scent of fresh cut grass and wild bluebells. Underneath the bright green tones were the dark brown of untended fields, mounds of cow dirt and the dark places at the bottom of wet trees. The bee did sleeves on Agnes's pink angora jumper danced in the wind and she twinkled like a rabbit dipped in rhinestones. Shuggy reached up and ran his fingers through the glass beads. His mother's mouth was set in a wide, white smile, her teeth not touching, like someone was taking her photo. She would have looked happy if her eyes hadn't kept anxiously flitting back to Shug's eyes in the rearview mirror. Shuggy sat playing with her sleeves and watched as her back molars came together and slowly started to grind back and forth. The road narrowed again and the last of the manicured gardens dropped away for good. There was a spit of dead yew trees and then flat open marshland sprang up on both sides. 
Small brown hillocks and clumps of brush and gorse broke the endless emptiness. Dirty copper burns snaked through the open fields and the wild brown grass grew right up on either side of the enclosing fences, trying to reclaim the rutted track, the pit road. The road itself was covered with a settled layer of charcoal dust and the taxi pulled lines through it as though it was the photo negative of fresh snow. The taxi shuddered around a lazy bend. In the distance lay a sea of huge black mounds, hills that looked as if they'd been burnt free of all life. They filled the line of the horizon and beyond them was nothing like it was the very edge of the earth. The burnt hills glinted when they were struck with sunlight and the wind blew black wispy puffs from the tops like they were giant piles of unhoovered stewer. Soon, the greenish-brownish air filled with a dark, tangy smell, metallic and sharp, like licking the spent end of a battery. They curved around another corner, and the broken fence ended at a large car park. At the back of the car park sat a high brick wall with an old iron gate set into it, held tight with a heavy padlock and chain. The guard's booth at the side was tilting at a funny angle, and a thick layer of weedy grass grew on its roof. The mine was shut. Someone had painted... Fuck the Tories on the plywood barrier. It looked like it was closed for good. Opposite the gates was a low concrete building and dozens of men were spilling out of its windowless structure and stood in dark clumps on the pit road. At first it looked like they were leaving chapel, but as the diesel engine roared nearer, they turned as if they were one. The miners stopped their talking and squinted to get a good look. They all wore the same black donkey jackets and were holding large amber pints and sucking on stubby doubts. The miners had scrubbed faces and pink hands that looked free of work. It seemed wrong, these men being the only clean thing for miles. Reluctantly, the miners parted and let the taxi go by. Leek watched them as they were watching him. His stomach sank. The men all had his mother's eyes. The housing scheme spread out suddenly before them. Ahead, the thin, dusty road ended abruptly into the side of a low brown hill. Each of the three or four little streets that made up the scheme branched horizontally off this main road. Low-roofed houses, square and squat, huddled in neat rows. Each house had exactly the same amount of patchy garden, and each garden was dissected by the identical crisscrossing of white washing lines and grey washing poles. The scheme was surrounded by the peaty marshland, and to the east, the land had been turned inside out, blackened and slagged in the search for coal. Is that it? she asked. Shug couldn't answer. From the roundness in his shoulders, she could see his own heart had sunk. Agnes's back teeth were powder. As they drove towards the little hill, they passed a plain-looking Catholic chapel and a huddled group of women, still with their housecoats on. Shug searched the street signs and turned the sharp, the taxi a sharp right. The street was a uniform line of modest four-and-a-block houses. Four families lived in one squat block. They were the plainest, unhappiest-looking homes Agnes had ever seen. The windows were big but thin-looking, letting the heat out and letting the chill in. Up and down the street, black puffs of coal smoke came out of the chimneys. The houses were incurably cold, even on a mild summer's day. Shug stopped the taxi a few houses down. He leaned over the steering wheel to get a clear look at the building. There were hardly any cars parked on the street, and the ones that, that, that were there looked like they were not in working condition. While Shug was distracted, Agnes rummaged around in her black leather bag. You three keep your mouth shut, she hissed. 
she lowered her head into the cavernous bag and tilted it slightly to her face. The children watched the muscles of her throat pulse as she took several long slugs from the can of warm lager she had hidden there. Agnes drew her head from the bag and the lager had washed the lipstick off her top lip. She blinked once, very slowly, under the layers of wasted mascara. What a shite hole, she said. And to think I dressed up nice for this. Thank you. I guess you learned to write somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the thing about that scene that, that breaks my own heart is, um, you know, Agnes has very modest dreams. So uh, like you said, she wants to come out of the, the high-rise towers. She wants a front door of her own. She wants to be able to afford clothes for her children, a little glamour, a little to be adored. And, and Shug uh, really treats her very cruelly when it comes to her dreams. When I read it in the, in the book, uh, I, it felt like I was watching a... A horror movie almost, you know, when you see the protagonist checking into a hotel and you said, you know, don't stay there, it's going to end very badly, you know, there are, there are better places down the road. <laughs> and then you realize that, that Agnes or women in this class, in this time, do not really have the luxury of a choice. <laughs> Men in this book become taxi drivers, many of them, which gives them license to go in and out of, <laughs> of Pithead and other places. Uh, women are to a shocking degree almost isolated mm -hmm. physically yeah. in their homes. Mm -hmm. They can't really move. That's right. Um, was that a conscious, I mean, did you feel like that too when you when Yeah, you that was, thank you for noticing that. Um, that was really a conscious decision. In a way, Agnes for me was the heroine of a Greek tragedy and much like that, she is on the stage while people come and say things to her, sing things to her and, and move around her. But I was thinking very much about the mobility I didn't have as a kid. You know, yeah. Glasgow is a, actually an incredibly diverse city. It's a beautiful city. It has many different, so somebody laughed again, it has many different social classes. Um, and it has many beautiful neighborhoods and I never saw them um, because really my entire existence was the four or to six streets that I lived on and it was a big deal to get a bus fare and to go somewhere. And I wanted the men to almost be archetypes of knights, almost like modern knights. They're in these, right. you know, chugging black taxis like their steeds, and they're doing whatever they want. They're rushing around. There's two taxi drivers that are pivotal in the book, yeah. and yet Agnes is really just pinned there, like a, like a, you know, she's really stuck. So it is a comment on mobility. It's also a comment, I think, on the cliche or the cliched notion of solidarity. Yeah. I wanted to really put my fingers under that because, or get my nails under that, because oftentimes in working class fiction, there can be this sort of like sense of absolute solidarity. <laughs> and there is, there really is. I've never known tighter, more caring communities, but the solidarity is offered to you if you can fit in. And if you should not be able to fit in, if you should stand out, if you should, you know, feel different about it, if you should be a little snobby like Agnes is, a little vain, a little proud, then often the solidarity is used to exclude you. And so the small place was important for me for that. Yeah, the social control in the novel is, mm -hmm. is so uh, repressive mm -hmm. and cruel, mm -hmm. especially between the women or also between the women. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'd known that as a I'd known that as a kid, and then actually I'd sort of seen it echo in fashion as a man, which was a strange thing to say. But but you know, as a children, I'd seen because my mother was a single mother that other women, some other women, didn't know how to deal with her and didn't want to deal with her. She was a you know 
my mother was a beautiful woman. Agnes Bain is very beautiful. Um, and, and there's a threat there, there's an unease there. If you have a sense of sexuality to yourself, a sense of self-worth, if you are sort of, you know, if it's also a time when women often need men, um, even if they want them, they oftentimes they don't want them, but they also kind of need them sometimes to bring money home, to give them social standing, to, you know, to help them around the house in this society. And I had really known that the worst harm that happened to my mother was from other women. Um, I had really seen it, and just the loneliness she felt. But I wanted to contrast that, because at the very beginning of the book, Agnes is thick with friends. Mm -hmm. She has this real powerful sorority. Um, she has many really good friends from her childhood, although one betrays her very poorly, very badly. But I then wanted to really have her feel that sort of isolation of friendship. Because also that's what happens with addiction. A lot of people sort of, oh, I can't deal with that. I don't want to be around it. Even people that love you almost have to distance themselves to save themselves. One feature of the society is it's hierarchical. There's men on top in many ways, mm -hmm. but there's still very little authority. Mm -hmm. There are no positive authorities. Mm -hmm. You know, Shug can, Shuggy can be gone for, from school for weeks, as you said, mm -hmm. without anyone really mm -hmm. noticing at all. Mm -hmm. There were no adults mm -hmm. that saw you or Shuggy when you were at the age. Right? Yeah. I think the, 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 one of the things I wanted to show in the book is, you know, Glasgow's a, a beautiful city, as I say, it's incredibly proud, but under the Thatcher government, unemployment went to 26%. And it stayed there for a really long time. It stayed there for most of my childhood. And when that happened, it also took 11 years off the life expectancy of a man living in the East End of Glasgow. That's enormous, that's yeah. a crime. Um, and so it wasn't just necessarily, what I want to show in the book is, it's not just the Bain family that are having a tough time. These are good people, maybe they're bad people, but they're reacting to the time that they're in. And so you see it mirrored with Leanne, you see it mirrored with Annie. And certainly, actually, I had a comfort of that strangely, perversely enough, of my youth. Because although I felt incredibly alone with the queer bullying and those things, Bjorn, I didn't actually feel socioeconomically alone or alone in addiction. My mother was very connected to a subculture of other women who suffered with addiction. And some mornings when I went to school, they were already having a party in the front room. You know, there was a community as, as, uh, uh, as perhaps twisted as it could be sometimes. Um, and so I never actually felt alone with that. You're not a fan of Thatcher, I think, but it, would you say that your novel reaffirms perhaps her most famous line, which is, there's no such thing as society? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I... Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think it confirms it. I think it... I just want to show, without placing any judgment... Let me start again. I actually didn't set out to write a political novel. I didn't, that was never my goal. I set out to write a love story, both between a mother and her children. It was meant to be an incredibly intimate story, um, but it was also meant to be about a woman's quest for love, you know? A big part of the novel is about Agnes being rejected and then Agnes thinking she finds uh, love again. And so, and even, fraternal love between brothers. Yeah. But I couldn't set a book there without it becoming political because there was so much upheaval. There was so, uh, you know, between unemployment and addiction and people falling through the, the net in society. But it was also a time where women and men had to reckon with what they meant to each other, uh, where young queer men start to really become slightly more visible, where masculinity has to be challenged because it's too narrow, you know? A lot of what I think about in the book is, I'm asked a lot about masculinity and about how could some of these men do that? But I often think about 
we did a lot to those men, you know? The men go down into earth and get cold, they're in shipyards, they could be killed by swinging girders. And we never stopped to ask our fathers, are you all right, are you happy, are you safe? Do you have other dreams? Uh, you know, do you want to be a poet? We just expected them to go do it and to, you know, suck it up and, and grind it down. And when you do that to men, bad things flow from it. You know, everyone has mental health and we all need to be in attention to it. No one takes care of Agnes's, but nobody's mental health in the book is, is considered. But, but the misery of Agnes and, and Shuggy and the family, uh, how much is it because of the unemployment and uh, sort of the larger picture that looms in the background? I often think of it as, you know, in writing the book, I had to, I understood what it felt like from my perspective when I began, and part of the reason why it took me 10 years is because I had to develop empathy or understanding for what my mother felt like. Um, and actually it became, as I got older, I started to be able to, I couldn't walk in her shoes because she had very small feet, first of all, uh, but also I just was able to be in her shadow a little bit and feel the coldness. And I was thinking, you know, what if you were bright and brilliant and beautiful and you had ambition and you had dreams and you, society couldn't give them to you, couldn't give you any mobility? You know, my mother would have come on an age and a generation where the first time you're meant to, you have sexual desire, you have to get married. Um, and then you marry a man and then, you know, you raise kids and you have a house. The houses aren't especially nice because you're, you know, you're of the working class. But if you have ambitions, if you have any other dreams and you can't quite reach them, what do you feel, you know? And, and when I first started the book, Agnes was a very angry character. Something happened to her and she drank, and something happened to her and she drank. And I realized actually that the leeching away of hope is a much more subtle thing, and it's much more gradual. And I could start to empathize and sympathize with my mother as I got into my 40s, because I would think, is this it sometimes? You know, is this all there is? Mm. And yet I'm a man. And I'm a man that had the power of an education behind me. When she, or when the character of Agnes would have been leaving high school, first of all, didn't graduate high school, got out and went and got a job right away. Um, but then also, you know, only 0.003% of university students from the labor class, from the working class. If you slice that between men and women, it has to be a microscopic number for women. Um, and so I had so much sympathy. Um, and I think that's a reason why I'm never angry at my mother, um, because you know she had so much potential and she just couldn't get there. So, so that empathy or forgiveness, mm -hmm. or grace, maybe it mm -hmm. grew out of writing. It did, yeah. It, it did. It did, yeah. Okay. You know, working class men aren't ever meant to sit and talk about their trauma. It's funny. Well, I'm on a stage now and talking about it, but you know. Scottish men are meant to be very silent and stoic. I think perhaps Scandinavian men are the same. Thank God for my art because it allowed me to process things. It allowed me to take very ugly things and try and make them beautiful to really sort of sit with it and think about it. And so my, you know, writing the book was incredibly healing for me. People ask me if it made me sad. It actually made me really happy because it, um, It was cathartic, it was a release. It, it felt like I was dealing with things that I hadn't dealt with since I was a very young man. And so I felt an enormous sense of relief. Um, perhaps my readers feel a little bit of that trauma now, but uh, certainly I feel better. That's so great. thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing it with me. <laughs> It's uh, it always a little irritating when people pulls off a, a masterpiece in their spare time, as you did. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're now a professional writer or a full-time writer. Uh, but it was 
rejected 44 times the book. Yeah. Uh, and you were, you know, uh, brave enough to be informed after every time. I was. <laughs> why, why is that? Are you... My God, it was, <laughs> it was one of the dumbest things I'd ever done. It was, it was really a... I was so hopeful and uh, <laughs> naive, but Shoggy took me 10 years to write and I had to write it all in my spare time. I had to work in New York, I work in fashion. Uh, I would start at the studio some mornings at eight o'clock. I wouldn't finish till eight was a good day. 10 was a normal day, four in the morning was really crunch times. And so sometimes I had to write on the subway, sometimes I had to write if we weren't even guaranteed weekends off. And so if I got a weekend off, I would write. And so after 10 years of work, I'm so excited because the manuscript's gonna go out for submission. And my agent says to me, it'll be rejected. When, when it's rejected, do you want to hear? And I was like, yes, please. And so <laughs> don't ever do that if you're a debut novelist or even <laughs> any novelist, don't. It, you know, I was thinking, I just wanna be so present for this journey, I can take it. <laughs> and um, after the 20th rejection, she just stopped telling me. <laughs> and it turns out that the book was rejected 44 times and it was rejected for all kinds of reasons. Few editors just didn't like it, didn't understand it, didn't want it. Um, but many people didn't know how to connect readers with this story. Um, they saw it, uh, especially because I lived in New York, as a story about another time and a place. Didn't know where Glasgow was, perhaps, um, or didn't you know, know how to connect with it. Um, but of course, I think of it as a very universal human experience. It's, not, it's about a time and a place, but it's really about humans. Yeah, it's, it's really strange, I think. I mean, it, the, it's beautifully written, but it also deals with so many issues that are at the center of of politics today, mm -hmm. I mean the deindustrialization of the Western world, yeah. uh, but also violence and sexual mm -hmm. violence. Mm -hmm. It's really a, you know, I want to label it as a Me Too uh, novel, but it is in a way a Me Too novel. It is really about how normalized sexual violence is in our society. Absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book is show that there's no place for trauma to go sometimes. It was hard sometimes to write a novel set in 1980s with uh, with my understanding of how we should act today in 2020. And so there's one scene at the beginning of the book where Agnes is uh, raped within her marriage. And I spent a lot of time thinking, I have to write the next day of that. I have to have a conversation. And, and I thought, well, that feels like a very 2020 thing to do, to have there be some repercussions. Because I'd always known when terrible things happened at home or something else, all you could do sometimes was just pick yourself up, internalize it, and like get up. Um, and that's also part of the hope and the strength of the book, I hope, Bjorn, because you know, hope in literature is often a very bright thing on a horizon. It's a sunset, um, or a sunrise, rather. But actually, real hope in real life can be a very quiet thing. It can be a very timid thing, and sometimes it's just getting up tomorrow, as Shuggy does, or as Leek does, or as Agnes does, and thinking, let's hope today's okay. Um, and that, that's also hope. Did you interpret the rejections through a Mm, a class prisma? Did you see it as the you know, established literary world turning their eye away from a working class dirt? I certainly felt some of them were about that. Yeah, I think like recognizes like, and I think we still have um, underrepresentation for working class, for regional voices all over the world, um, uh, for queer regional voices. Uh, I think also sometimes. You know, poverty is a hard thing to look at in literature. It's it's sometimes seen as something. Do we really want to to go into that world? But I'd always known about 
that these were really important lives to me and they were also the center of my own experience. One of the things that the rejection actually taught me is that people see me as other or see this experience as other because for me it was my life or you know this is my backdrop. I wouldn't say the scenes were my life but this is my world so for me it's, it's central to me and then suddenly the rejection was a bit like oh that's, we don't see, we don't get that. Right. Um, Did the manuscript change between the first rejection and the 44th? Not one single word. <laughs> That's very <laughs> Not one comma. No. I was sure of the art I wanted to create, and it wasn't that I felt everyone else was wrong, but I also felt like I'd done the thing I wanted to do, and I was going to stand by it. A lifetime in design also had taught me that when you start to change on other people's opinion, whatever your idea was, you lose it. It no longer is really yours. And, and I thought, whatever I have created, I'm going to have created it exactly as I want it. Did you have an editor or who did you put trust in? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, after the book was uh, acquired, it got one single offer um, from a very brave editor who's a really uh, wonderful, bright, young editor. Um, and then we worked on editing it. Um, but but even then, you know, the book for me, his edits, I almost couldn't process. You know, he, you go through and he says, maybe we don't need this paragraph. Maybe we don't need this. We don't need to know this. We don't, and, and I rejected most of them because I didn't want that intrusion in the work. And then what actually happened was he sort of saw the rejections and he saw we weren't making progress. And he just said, you know, after giving me two pages of suggestions, he just said one sentence and he said, you know, this book is strongest when we keep the lens on Shuggy and Agnes. And I went, oh. And then I went away and reread it and I said, oh, you know what, we're not, we need to get back to Shuggy and Agnes. And so I saw places to edit it. But it really ultimately edited for an almost 500 page book, only about 30 to 40 pages. So it wasn't much. But it shrunk from the beginning, it was much thicker. Well, my first draft, oh my <laughs> God. Um, my first draft because, you know, I didn't tell anyone I was writing the book um, when I began to write it because I was, you know, I, I felt intimidated by it, I felt inferior, I didn't know who I was to have license to suddenly say, I'm going to write a book. I actually didn't even admit it was going to be a book as for the first couple of years I was writing it because it was too much to sort of dream of and hope for. All I was doing was writing, it was all about the verb and not about the product. And that was great because it allowed me to do it without any expectation. It was also terrifying because the first draft was about 16 to 1800 pages. Oh, wow, yeah. And so it was these two legal binders, I mean, about this thick, and it sat on my shelf. And, you know, um, the only person who read it was my husband. And I like, you know, I beg him to read it. You know, he's, you know, he works in art. And I was like, please just read it. You know, let's just, so I, I'm not feeling so lonely. And it's my thing. And he reads it. And um, he reads like the first 100 pages. And he goes through with very thoughtful notes. You know, this doesn't make sense. He's really, really thoughtful. And then he loses the will to live, to be totally frank. <laughs> he just gives up. And if I actually show you this, these two legal binders, you just see the pen sort of come off the edge of the page. And he starts to go through things and he's like, stop it. You know, 
he's like, oh, he just makes these all, all these noises, um, and and so it's it's fascinating, and then so we went through this like negotiation in our marriage because I begged him to do it, I begged him to do it, and then I hovered over him like, are you done? And he was like, this is 1,600 pages, I have a career, and then when he was done, I said, why did you do that? You know, and I couldn't look at it for six months. I couldn't. Oh, really? I felt really hurt um, because it was such a personal thing, and you yeah. know, I begged him, I pestered him, and then I was like, why did you do that? And so, yeah, he packed his bags a few times. And what happened after six, oh really? <laughs> yeah. He, what happened after six months? When you well, after, it up? Yeah, after he had um, read it and he'd sort of marked it up and given me his thoughts on it, I just spent the next nine years working on the book and, wow. and, and changing it. And I, I, I often say, and I don't say the whole story, but I often say the book actually didn't change beyond the story. The narrative never, ever changed. I knew we would start with Shuggy on his own. I knew we would look at the family. I knew what every character did, how we would end with Agnes. I knew about Eugene. Everything was very clear to me. I rewrote every single sentence a thousand times um, until it felt right. And then over the nine year period, the book distills almost. It's sort of the things I don't need. You know, we follow Catherine to South Africa. I was fascinated by, um, you know, Eugene as well and Eugene's daughter. And we just didn't ultimately need these things in the book. And so the book just sort of gets down to its essence. Um, to it's, it's fascinating you did this on your own the whole time. Yeah, but that was the joy of it. Um, that was that was like a really strong desire for me because as a designer, you do nothing on your own. Yeah. You know, the minute you have a thought or you like a color, someone wants to dye fabric in that color or or knit something or get a button that matches it or make a pattern for it. You do very little on your own when you work in design. Um, and so this really was my very personal project. I was very protective of it. And actually, when I told my fashion friends, um, after the whole journey and the book was accepted by an an editor, my friends took me out for dinner and, and I had a coming out, you know, I had, a, I had to say I've written this book uh, <laughs> and it's just, I'm going to be doing this now and I was with maybe 12 fashion friends, not a single one of them asked me what the book was about. Oh really? <laughs> not one of them, like nobody said, what's it about? They all asked me, do you get to design the cover? Like, <laughs> and I was like, you've missed the point, but okay. Uh, that's that's sad. I mean, really, it was a very lonely place to be, actually. Yeah. But but I was, you know, you can't look for. I don't know. I don't know what the metaphor would be. You can't look for something from a tool that can't give that. You know. Do, I do you have new friends now? See that again. I'm still friends. I'm still. Oh, friends. Do you have new friends now? I have. I have new. Actually, I don't because I've been locked up for the pandemic. <laughs> so I published a novel and I haven't left the house. <laughs> so will you be my friend? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, but seriously, it's it's as a writer myself. It's really hard to lose. Uh, it's really easy to lose sight of your text, of your, mm -hmm. uh, especially if it's 800 pages. But did you have a, a vision of what, what, when it was going to be right? I didn't. The, the, when I knew it was ready was actually because it had been such a joy for me to write. As a sad book, that's strange to say, but I loved it. I would sit on the subway and I would talk to Leek and I would run the characters <laughs> in my mind. I really would, I would hear them. And then I would rush to my desk and I would like write one sentence. There was sometimes I couldn't get to an actual desk for six weeks. Mm. You know, it was a, I had an incredibly demanding job. I used to love being flown to the Far East um, because I had 16 hours where no one could reach me. And that for me was like a company sponsored writer's retreat. I was like, <laughs> and they would say, who wants to go to China? And I'd be like, I don't need to go, but I'll go. Um, and and so I loved that, but it had creatively, you know, it it 
reached its, the end of its life for me. It was like a sail that was pulling me through my 30s. I loved it and it was inspiring me. And then suddenly it becomes an anchor because I can't move on and I can't write something else and I can't really dedicate my time because I can't stop going back and, and changing the language. And so I knew I had to share it because it was starting to block other things. Mm, okay. It has, I think, a delicate and beautiful balance between this sort of raw black and white... Um, realness, which is reflected on the cover, this sort of Canelochian landscape, and, and a lot of poetry as well. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you use the color, you have a lot of metaphors. How do you think about the, how did you put it, how did you tie it together? You know, I, I, have a, I have a pretty, I don't know I have a great answer for that, but I think often about the Glaswegian spirit. Um, I think about you know, there's a really wonderful part of the city where the people, because they don't have very much, deal with life as it comes to them. And oftentimes it can be very opposing things at the same time. It can be trauma or it can be violence with tenderness or it can be tenderness that then goes wrong. You know, in very sad times, there can be an awful lot of humor because we, we believe in sort of, you know, picking the spirit up in a way. There's a saying in Scotland that says you would rather go to a Glaswegian funeral than an Edinburgh wedding. And that's just because we're more fun. You know, <laughs> even in our toughest times, we're more fun than the, than the richer people over there. Um, but that sort of contrast and that um, tension is, is part of humanity as well. And when you don't have the comfort of money, like Shuggy doesn't, he has to take it as it comes. Especially as a child, you have limited agency. If is today a bad day, you better deal. Today a great day, wonderful. And so I wanted even for the reader for that to feel that way. But the central thing about the book is love. And so even when I was writing about terrible things or ugly things, I wanted them to be as beautiful as possible or the language to be as beautiful as possible. I didn't want it to be... Another thing that I was always aware of is sometimes in working class fiction or working class cinema, British realist cinema of the 60s, working class life when it's grim is grim. It's all very great, it's all very drab. And certainly my own house growing up, some, there is some of that, you know, it's a very gray city, it's very wet. Um, but in my own house, you know, and a lot of houses around me, the women were immaculate, especially when we didn't have much. The one thing we could control was how we looked and how our house looked and, and how children looked when they went over the door. So I'd found the inverse because there's a very complicated relationship with pride and shame and self-worth that actually we looked like a million bucks. We worried about it because we couldn't afford to not look like that because mm. we were concealing so much about ourselves. And so I think I always wanted to have a sense of beauty in the book. Um, a sense of texture, a sense of smell, sound was important, but beauty. It really is beautiful. I think. Thank you. Um, uh, the people of Pithead, I don't know if Pithead exists, but uh, have, have you heard from them? <laughs> Pithead is fictional. Actually, all of the book is set in a real place with the exception of Pithead. I did grow up in a mining town myself. I chose to make it fictional because actually it's a work of fiction and I didn't want to pin my perspective on the lives of 200 people. I felt that was unfair. I felt the rest of Glasgow could absorb it because it's true, but I felt like that small place couldn't. But I did hear the other day, this is totally anecdotal, you might not be interested, but you know, there's a, there's a feeling of doom that pervades my perspective of my mother and some of the characters in the book. It's not going to end well. The women are not going to make it through. And I actually heard the other day from one of my mother's 
real-life drinking cronies from her daughters that she lived to 84 and she was sober for the last 30 years of her life. Oh, really? And it was the most, and the book <laughs> brought that story to me and it was the most incredible news. I was so happy to hear it. Um, That's awesome. But yeah. what's been sort of the general reaction from the, from the working class, from, the, from, from where you come from? I think pride. Um, they've been they've really taken Shuggy and Agnes to heart because it's it's not just Shuggy's story; it's many people's story for a start, and we never get to talk about it. You know, sometimes the middle class say to us, "Why are you telling us that?" And then the working class say, "Don't tell them that." You know, I had an elderly aunt, and um, I always thought to myself when I was writing the book, you know, she wouldn't want us to share any of that. But then I came to the realization: if I had said we had a yellow tablecloth, she would also think. Nobody wants to know that. Why are you telling people that? So there was nothing you're allowed to share about yourself, you know? <laughs> that's, that's like a social class handicap in a way. Um, and so Scotland's really embraced the book. It's, you know, we're very proud it's our second Booker winner. Um, we're proud it celebrates language. But also, there are so many invisible lives here that were actually there that we never get to see reflected in the arts. And so it's, it's been a really powerful experience for me. You were gone there now? After Sweden? That's right. I'm hope, I haven't been home in, since I haven't seen the book published at home because we've all been locked down. I've been in New York. I haven't seen my family. My family all live in the streets that I write about. And next week I'm appearing at the Edinburgh Festival to close the festival. And I'm in conversation with the Prime Minister. Oh, really? The First Minister. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Not the Prime Minister. That's a very different kettle of fish. Um, <laughs> oh, that's with amazing. The first minister. Yeah, what are you going to say? I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to see what uh, she asked me about. But she's been, actually, Nicola Sturgeon was an enormous supporter of the book because she also understands there were so many stories we didn't hear. The thing about Thatcherism that was really fascinating, Bjorn, was there was a sense that no one was coming to help you. Yeah. You know, Glasgow and the west coast of Scotland had no political capital for the Conservatives because we generally don't vote for them. And so when they closed all of the industry and unemployment went to 26% in the working class communities, they didn't, there was no plan to come and help us. And in fact, government papers were, were printed later that said they knew it and they were just going to let Glasgow fall. They were going to manage the decline is how they put it. Um, and we knew that. We knew we didn't, we felt like we didn't matter profoundly, you know? When people don't bring jobs to town, when they don't come and bring culture to town in a way, you just feel very overlooked. At the same time, many people in Britain were booming because this was the, suddenly the privatization, privatization of nationalized industries. Mm. And so you have the work of Alan Hollinghurst. They're having a glorious time in London, you know? They're dancing with Margaret Thatcher. Right. And so, you know, if you've ever read The Line of Beauty, I like, you know, my jaw's on the floor. But some people had a wonderful time under Thatcher. A lot of people did not. Would you call yourself a Scottish nationalist? Ooh, we don't talk about that. <laughs> You're among you know, friends. Well, no. I'll tell you why we don't talk about it, because I think the one thing Scottish people don't love to hear is an opinion if you're not currently living there. Oh, yeah. So that's out of respect for <laughs> Scottish people. You know, do you want to hear my opinion on Swedish politics? <laughs> Please. <laughs> no, but really, would you vote for independence? Again, <laughs> really? The same no, I said the same answer. Okay. I mean, I just don't comment on it because I think it's more out of respect for people. It's easy to comment on something if you're not currently living there and then you don't have to take the consequences either way. There'd be consequences either way. So I just don't comment. Uh, are you an American citizen? So did you move out of Scotland or are you on your way back in, or in exile or how do you... Well, <laughs> well, you know, funnily enough, I've realized through the journey of the book that, you know, I, I love Glasgow. 
All my family still live um, right there. I usually go home two or three times a year in an ordinary year. It's not been an ordinary year. Um, with the publication of Shuggy, I'm looking to actually be between Glasgow and New York more. Um, and I didn't realize that was a subconscious desire until until it started to happen. You know, I've always loved Glasgow, but Glasgow had a tough time loving me. And that's, we have to be honest about that, right? It was a tough time because it was a very masculine society and young queer guys didn't, young poor queer men didn't always feel at home. And so I think Shuggy writes me back into the fabric of the city and many other young queer men. Yeah. And also as a way to bring me home. And I didn't realize that's what I was trying to achieve, but it's certainly... What do you love about it? What do I love about the city? Yeah. The humanity, the spirit. <laughs> I you just said it was not so human against you. Well, yeah, but but that's to do with my queerness. That's only one facet of who I am as a human. Okay. And generally, if I concealed my queerness, then everything else was fine. Um, but you can't conceal your queerness. And and even now, I mean, something that you might not know is, you know, Scotland as a nation came the furthest with gay rights in the quickest amount of time. They're an incredibly diverse nation. It's an incredibly proud nation. Um, and, you know, our gay citizens are, are safe and secure and celebrated. And so it's totally changed since I was a kid. But, uh, you know, but you, I love the people about. Glasgow's always been a really creative city, but it's a really honest place. It, it won't, uh, you know, it won't flatter you. It won't pull your chain. It will tell you exactly, exactly what's going on. We were talking backwards uh, or in the back about uh, a headline in a British newspaper and it said, I think, uh, a New York fashionista uses Sight Hill as inspiration for a novel about Glasgow. Yeah. That's a little the same reaction that uh, that Shuggy gets when he moves into Pithead, you know, a little... Uh, is that a reaction you have heard? Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I found the fashionista thing a little condescending, I think, because it it also belittles the fashion industry in general, which is a huge, you know, trillion-dollar industry globally. Because you were an executive for... I was an executive, yeah, yeah. I ran American fashion brands, you know. There's a good <laughs> chance I'm hanging in your husband's closets somewhere. My mind is in there somewhere. Um, that's creepy for you. You can go through <laughs> it tonight. You can go through it tonight. Actually, I, I designed underwear for many years, so there's a chance of... of <laughs> it's been incredibly intimate. Um, but yeah, fashionista is just a, a, a term, but um, I'm really proud of how Scotland has celebrated the book and celebrated the literature. And, and you know, and Shuggy and Agnes, I think, would be proud too. I think part of why I tried to write the book was to help my mother's story be seen and, and stories like my mother's, you know. Something that always sticks in my mind, you know, for a, for a country like many countries that has quite a hard drinking culture that's a masculine culture, I remember the fact that my mother couldn't go into a pub by herself. Mm. And like my grandmother certainly couldn't. But even when my mother was a young woman, she couldn't just go sit at a bar. If she went in, she also had to go into the snug. You know, she would be in a certain part of the pub. And when you're such a social drinking masculine culture like that, it erases a lot of stories from the public space. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, part of writing Shuggy was about just underlining that. We were always here. The, the whole issue of, of alcohol in the, in the novel is it, the whole city reeks of booze, really. It's all over the place, all the time. And that horrendous scene when Agnes' boyfriend, Eugene, mm -hmm. uh, she's been sober for a year, mm -hmm. and uh, he can't stand the fact that she doesn't drink because that makes her not normal. That's right. You know, the, yeah. the 
the, the convention of drinking is so strong that mm-hmm. uh, not drinking is more weird than being an alcoholic. You know? Totally. I think that's something we still do to people. I think sometimes if you have a sober friend or someone who doesn't like to drink, some people still say, oh, have a wee, what? come on, but tonight, um, you know, we still, I see my own friends get pressured in that way. But um, normal is a real central theme to the book. I mean, Shuggy's entire journey is about normality, but also as Agnes's. I wanted, in a funny way, they're actually united in their isolation because they're being isolated for their femininity, but they're they're very lonely. And I didn't ever want to write a book that was just about us observing this one woman by herself and everyone being okay around her, nor Shuggy. I wanted it to be to intensify the love by how they cling to each other. But Agnes's drinking, yeah, Eugene makes the fatal flaw, which is sometimes men can believe themselves to be heroes. You know, they can think just by being in their somebody's life that everything can be okay. And he's a very upstanding man. He's a well-intentioned person, I believe. You know, he's even a sheriff. He's a play sheriff. You know, they go to the, yeah. the country and western club and everyone dresses up and he dresses up as a sheriff. You know, he thinks very highly of his, of his moral standing. And... Um, and Agnes falls for it in a way. But she also desperately does want to be normal. She does want to fit in. Um, and it mirrors really what's happening with Shuggy and everyone around Shuggy. Yeah, because, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you know about Shuggy's queerness. But one of the things that I had to come to terms with, I might have said this earlier, but it was really fascinating for me as a human and also as a writer is I thought my mother's drinking and the drinking of friends of the family had come on because something happened. And and I've spent most of my life trying to go back to that like October in 1981 where someone noticed my mother was suffering and just find that moment and stop it, you know, like I could time travel. And one of the things people came, you know, relatives made me understand people who've suffered with addiction, is nobody could tell when that happened to my mother, my own mother, never mind Agnes. And I had to really rework the book that way because, you know, drink is all around them already. They're already drinking. They're having a good time and then maybe a couple of bad times. But before you know it, the tide has rised or you've sunken into it and now you have a problem. And that was something that I had to reckon with over the 10 years because I didn't understand that at the beginning. I thought, you know, there was a moment and my Mm. mother's friends could have helped her. You thought that, but I you, did at you the beginning. Yeah, as a young man, because I don't suffer with addiction myself, and so I thought there would be, you know, mm. I just thought someone would have noticed. Whether it was didn't have to have been one single night; it could have been a week or a month or a or a season. But that there was a moment, and when I asked them, they were like, "No, your mother was always the life of the party. She always liked to have a drink, and then suddenly it wasn't fun anymore." But but they, but they were looking back years and years. But the scene where she starts to drink again after being uh, mm-hmm. sober for a year—that's a little. That's a scene that really means a lot. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about fate. I was thinking a lot about how you cannot save the person no matter what you do. They can only save themselves. Um, And as a child of addiction, you take so much of that burden on yourself. A lot of my adult life has been trying to come to terms with that, especially as a son, I think. You know, we feel very protective of our mothers, usually. I certainly feel protected of mine, and I know my siblings do. Um, But... You know, the battle rages within the person or the character themselves. And most of the book, her children do anything they can to try and head off what Agnes might need or to protect her. I mean, Agnes, one of the scenes in the book that I think is really um, instrumental is the scene where she sends Shuggy out to deliver a can of beer for New Year's. It's traditional in Scotland. And when he turns his back, she runs away. She just flees. 
And here's a you know, 10-year-old boy that has to, where's she gone? In the city of 1.2 million people, where is she? And he has to go out and find her, and obviously bad things happen, but the child is almost always trying to help, trying to get in front of it. Um, and that's, that's it. it. Part of the reckoning is, is you can't, Agnes has to do it for herself, as she has to want it. What about the, the man? If you forgave Agnes by writing, did you forgive... I mean, I don't know when your father disappeared, but uh, are you as forgiving towards the men in your upbringing as towards your mother? Complex that is for <laughs> me. Um, I'm forgiving for I'm forgiving to I'm forgiving to all the men because I've come to understand also how hard and narrow it was to be a man. And I think we're you spoke about the Me Too movement, but I think we're having really powerful conversations about toxic masculinity that are long overdue and will help everything in society. You know, part of what I wanted to do in the book with Shug and have Shug, Shug left two women really quickly and sort of, you know, there was no consequences. He didn't look back. He also didn't go be a single guy. He just moved in with another family. And Agnes, the character of Agnes, bears all the stigma. She bears all the hardship. She bears the isolation. And I was thinking about how sometimes fathers could do that. You know, there was no... There was no consequence for the men, but the women had to bear it all. And so, you know, I often say all the characters in the book are just good or bad people reacting to a good or bad time. They're not necessarily bad people, but I think Shug's a bit of a bastard. And so, yeah, I do hate Shug. So, there you go. What about, uh, I can't pronounce it in English, Eugene? Eugene. 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 Um, Actually, Eugene, usually when I give my real opinion on Eugene, I get like hisses from the crowd. <laughs> but I think Eugene didn't know what he did. I think he's a well-intentioned person. He certainly, what I wanted to do was set him up as the archetype of a hero. And you, you almost think Shug's going to destroy Agnes in the book. He's certainly trying, feeds his ego. She's a beautiful woman. He wants to keep her adoring her, but also sort of stuck, adoring him, but also stuck in a trap. Um, and yet it's Eugene that, that, that sort of undermines everything. And, um, you know, I think Eugene thought he was trying to do the right thing. It comes back to the conversation about Shuggy and his normality. You know, many people in this book love Shuggy. You know, his grandmother loves him, his mother loves him, his brother loves him. But they cannot imagine a happy future where, you know, they can kind of see what he's becoming. He doesn't know what it is. They know he's feminine and they can't imagine a happy future because at the time there was no happy futures in that part of town for a young, for a gay man to be an adult. And so they're trying to help him survive. They're trying to help him fit in. You know, he spends, that's one of the horrible things about homophobia is children that sort of suffer under it often think they can change. If they alter something about their essential self, then maybe they'll fit in a little bit more. They'll, they'll be less prone to violence or isolation. And so Shuggy reads historical football scores like they're a novena, like they're a rosary, almost like if he can just absorb soccer scores, it'll do something for him. He tramples grass circles flat, trying to walk and make room for his cock. And his brother helps him to do it, not because he doesn't love his brother, but because he knows masculinity is narrow. So after 44 re uh, rejections, uh, the book is now, I mean, uh, as a big, a huge success worldwide. Uh, 30 languages, you said? 39. 39. Um, it might be 44. <laughs> uh, do you feel, um, I mean, your empathy with, with the working class in the book is, is absolute, but do you feel that you still belong to that class or do you feel that you are something else now? That's a great question. 
I feel liminal. I've always felt liminal in my life. I've liminal? Always, liminal. I've always, felt, I've always felt caught between two opposing things. I felt like a man and I felt feminine. I felt, uh, you know, I'm a designer, I'm a writer. I live in Scotland, I live in New York. So I've always felt that. I don't think your Scottishness and your working class upbringing is like a coat. I don't think you ever take it off. I think, you know, it informs everything I see in the world. It informs um, how I react to problems and opportunities. And, and you know, it really, it's just, it's how I was raised. And so the only thing that sort of makes me a little sad is I almost had to ascend to the middle class in order to find the space yeah. to be able to write a working class story. And I think that's often true for a lot of writers. Um, but certainly inside myself, I've, you know, if we went to war tomorrow, I'd be on the working class side. We, and we know how to swing a halberd, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We don't know what halberds are. Never mind. Uh, you're a full-time writer now. Mm -hmm. uh, is, it, is it harder to write when you're a full-time writer than when you're a, uh, an amateur, so to speak? Yeah, it, 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 it's harder to write after you win the booker. Um, because I think there's, I think there's a lot of expectations and there's pressure and uh, feedback, and uh, I'm really fortunate because what essentially had been my problem or my isolation, I think, will become something that saves me a little bit. I actually finished my second novel before Shuggy was longlisted for the Booker, so my my difficult second album is written. <laughs> you have recorded it, and whether it you know, whether people like it or don't, it certainly only comes from me. And so I'm grateful for that. So, but certainly now um, my understanding has widened and my creativity has expanded. So we'll see. I'm working on my third novel at the moment. I'm working on a short story collection. I'm working on the screenplay for Shuggy Bane because we're hoping he comes to television sometime next year. Um, so I'm busy. But do you work more openly with editors and other <laughs> colleagues now, or is it still this little hub? <laughs> uh, I don't know, my editor's in the dark there. He can, he can my Swedish editor's here. Um, <laughs> and he was important for the book. You, you, he got he he a thank you in the end. Yeah, I mean, um, Daniel Sandstrom at Bonniers was important in so many ways. But I don't know if you know this, but Sweden was the very first country to uh, to acquire Shuggy Bane as a translation. Um, when he was being rejected in English and all around the world, you know, Bonniers said, no, this is a work of literature. Swedish readers should read this. And so I'm forever grateful to the Swedish readers' curiosity and inclusion. And, and so thank you, whatever, I can't quite see, but thank you. But um, uh, what, was yeah, it that, what was it that Sweden understood or... Donny Sandstrom understood. I can't answer that because if I answer that, it will be the front page in the paper in New York tomorrow. <laughs> I think Sweden understands literature. Um, uh, it's not to say other people do not, but I, you know, I think um, I think people, Sweden understands literature, and I think oftentimes, you know, we have more curiosity as Europeans because we come from smaller countries. I think Scotland's more curious. I think we look outwards more, and um, you know, really has embraced Shaggy Bain, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but no, I'll never listen to editors. Um, really? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, you can tell when an editor's feedback is really good, and then you can tell when it's an opinion. Mm -hmm. And you have to make the decision in that. What's the That's difference? What's, what's <laughs> well, the difference comes from 20 years of experience in the design industry. And it comes from listening to a lot of bad opinions often and then regretting it. <laughs> and so I trust my editor very deeply, my American editor, my primary editor very deeply. But I think at the end of the day, 
what you have to remember as a writer is no matter what the book goes through is the process, the person who stands up with it is only the writer. At the end of the day, it belongs to you and you created it. And so you have to always be very certain you've created the thing you wanted for any writer um, because it has your name on the front. I've asked you, I asked you before if you wanted to, as, a, as, as an end, to read the section where Agnes uh, dies. You weren't sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I don't know if you feel comfortable. Please, if you want to read something else, uh, I guess that's okay too. But <laughs> okay, yeah, let's not let's not leave it with with Agnes's uh, demise. But I would love, if I may, to read you my favorite part from okay. the book. Um, Agnes actually, after being spurned by her husband, has been single and has been drinking, and now she's entered this glorious period of sobriety. She has um, realized she's going on her first date in many years, and she's met someone she's falling in love with, and she asks her son mostly to occupy him, because, you know, get her out from under, his feet, or under her feet to teach her how to dance. But the problem is that she's asked Shuggy Bain to teach her how to dance, and so he's teaching her the routine to Thriller, um, as though that's going to help her when she goes to a nightclub. Um, but, but he's dancing in the front room, and Agnes is watching. She's encouraging him. The song changed, and Shuggy kept dancing. It was a self-conscious shimmy now. His hands burst open like fireworks, and his head flicked as though he had long, sexy hair. He dipped and popped, using his hips too much for a boy. He emoted along with the song like it was a grand opera, not a three-bar pop factory hit for 13-year-old girls. Brilliant. What a smooth mover, she said. I'm going to do this all up the dancing next week. Eugene will just die. Just you wait. He was enjoying her attention. Something inside him flowered, and he started popping his body like he'd seen the black boys on telly do. The self-consciousness left him, and he spun and shimmied and shook in all the telly ways. He was mid-cat's leap when he let out a sharp scream. It was high-pitched and womanly, the same shriek he let loose when Leek leapt out of the dark at him. Shuggy stood with fingers outstretched, frozen in time. He hadn't seen them at first, and he would never know how long they had been there. But across the street, in the window of the front room, stood the Macavenies. They pressed against the large glass window, and they were gutting themselves with laughter. The window throbbed as they beat their hands against it with glee. Dirty Mouse did a little sexy girlish pirouette, and Shuggy realized that was him. He looked at his mother. When had she noticed? She only looked up at him and took a draw on her fag. Without glancing out the window, she spoke through clenched teeth. If I were you, I would keep dancing. I can't. The tears were coming. You know they only win if you let them. I can't. His arms and his fingers were still outstretched and frozen like a dead tree. Don't give them the satisfaction. Mammy, help. I can't. Yes, you can. She was smiling. Just hold your head up high and gee at Laldi. She was no use at maths homework, and some days you could starve rather than get a hot meal from her. But Shuggy looked at her now and understood that this was where she excelled. Every day, with the makeup on and her hair done, she climbed out of her grave and held her head high. When she had disgraced herself with drink, she got up the next day, put on her best coat, and faced the world. When her belly was empty and her wains were hungry, she did her hair and let the world think otherwise. 
It was hard at first to start moving again, to feel the music, to go to that other place in your head where you keep your confidence. It didn't go together, the shuffling feet and the jangly limbs, but like a slow train, it caught speed and soon he was flying again. He tried to tone down the big showy moves, the shaking hips, the big sweeping arms, but it was in him and as it poured out, he found he was helpless to stop it. Thank you. Thank you, Bjorn. Thank you so much.